Hello and welcome to Discussions in Tunbridge Wells, the psychology and mental health podcast produced by the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology in Kent. My name is John McGowan and I'm a psychologist in the centre. Today I'm joined by regulars Rachel Terry. Hello. And Laura Lee. Hello. And we're also very, very happy to be joined by one of our exceptionally fantastic and able trainees, Lauren Bryan. Hello and welcome. (laughs) Hi there, thank you for having me. Um, now, we're also uh, going to be joined by a great friend and supporter of the Salomon Centre, Raza Griffiths, who's been held up in traffic. And in many ways, Raza prompted this particular edition of the podcast as our theme today is the issue of race and how it plays out in mental health. There have been various recent developments which seem to me to suggest that this as an issue is rising in prominence. There's the Mental Health Act review announced by the Prime Minister, which we've talked about before. There's a statement about racism from the uh, Royal College of Psychiatrists. And also an interesting document, which I think we're going to try and really focus in on today, is called the Kindred Minds Manifesto. And Raza is the lead author of that, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about it. So guys, we seem to be in a position where this issue is, it certainly seems to have come a little bit more to the fore. Do we have any sense of why that might be? Or is that the way you're experiencing it? I'm very interested in the fact that it does seem to be coming to the fore now, when I think we have known about a lot of these issues for a really long time. We've known for a long time that black men are much more likely to be on forensic sections, that rates of psychosis appear to be higher in people from um, BME groups. Um, this this isn't, isn't new, so I am interested as to why this is becoming more of an issue now. I think that can only be a good thing, but I'm not sure why now. Um, for me, I'm just a bit concerned because I think it was an issue a few years back and perhaps it's raised again now. But for me, there is something about the fact that services for black people haven't changed. The situation doesn't seem to have improved. So is this going to bring about change? Because it seems that change is very necessary. Mm, I think I'd agree with you, Laura, in terms of the feeling that these conversations have been had kind of Mm. over and over. And I guess my experience of being a black person is that things have been said and there's not really been any kind of recognition and whether things are falling on deaf ears, whether there is going to be a call to action, which I kind of hope is kind of what the Kindred Minds manifesto will inspire. But I think it really needs the right kind of spaces for people of black and minority ethnic populations to feel that they're being heard and that actually people are going to take responsibility. I think that's the kind of the next step, not just being aware of the disparities in kind of experiences, but also making an effort to do something different. Well, I was wondering if this might be a good moment, actually, when we're thinking about just staking out the territory, mm-hmm. to go to an interview that I did the other day with a colleague of ours, uh, Harshad Keval, who's a sociologist and works in our own department, but over in Canterbury, uh, over in East uh, Kent. And he really scoped the kind of breadth of the territory for us not just thinking about mental health services but thinking more broadly than mental health uh, mental health services so let's let's go to that interview now 
Uh, it's always a pleasure to be joined by one of our colleagues from over in Canterbury uh, in my own department, uh, Harshad Keval, who is a lecturer in sociology with a long-term interest. Does that make you sound too old, Harshad? A long-term interest in race and the race, ethnicity and cultural issues as they play out in health. Welcome. Thanks very much, John. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I- when we were just talking uh, before we started recording, one of the things I, I was very interested in hearing from you about was just a, a slightly wider historical perspective, really, and thinking about, I, I suppose to put it simply, wh- where are we in the effect of these kind of variables in, in UK mental health and kind of how did we get to where we are? Sure. I mean, that's a really uh, interesting and important question. And I think trying to address the the how did we get here issue i think probably also needs some unpacking because um you know we have to ask the question well where is here because the answer to that question often depends on on who is in the position and who is speaking from that position and whose experiences we're talking about so the here often depends on a range of different identities um our racialized identity our gender our socioeconomic position very often the the where we are um looks like an okay place depending on the time because um at the moment you know we are in a dialogue we have social media we have awareness campaigns um, we have a, a wide variety of, of, of activisms uh, around the UK that are seeking to actually amplify the voices that have often been silenced and the experiences that have often been missed out of debates. So the here, where, where are we right now, um, is, is quite a sort of a, a contingent, uh, contingent answer. Um, I think there's probably a great deal of work to do in terms of how policy is going to address the various problems that have been in existence for a long time. But I think uh, um, the, the here um, is something that often needs to be unpacked. John? Well, it seems, I, I mean, in some ways that feels very encouraging. Obviously, social media and a kind of wider democratization of, um, you know, um, you know the way information is disseminated um, you know, I guess we're going to be catching up with that as a human race for decades, really, with you know, with how that's changing us and and the effects that's having. But I suppose within mental health, particularly in the UK, there are some very big and kind of egregious issues that really, really seem to stand out in terms of well, one of the marquee ways in which that really came up was. Uh, to do with the Prime Minister's Mental Health Act review and the degree to which detention was something which was applied really, really disproportionately, especially to black men, but to other uh, BME groups as well. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, I think where we are right now is also we're in a space of potential change because there's much more, there's awareness, there's a, a, the beginning of a changing agenda um, in, in terms of how BME communities and people uh, who have a variety of different health experiences are treated. The, the important thing right now is that um, there is a seat at the table. And I think a lot of activist groups and academics and writers and, and uh, survivor networks um, are able to be at the table advocating and driving change. But I think going back to uh, what Kwame McKenzie said a long time ago, uh, and in fact, you know, uh, as, a, as a psychiatrist working within that field, Kwame McKenzie um, made a very bold statement. Actually, um, the UK and indeed the world is a very, very dangerous place for black people. 
And I think what he was trying to get at was that in order to understand where we are right now and how we got here, we have to understand the history of how um, this country and the institutions and cultural practices actually process um, notions of the other, the foreign other, the colonial other, the the kind of the changing landscape of citizenship. And I think all these historical issues, uh, certainly in this country, but across Europe and in other countries around the world, I think we're at a moment now where we're in a position where we can very honestly, and we need to honestly look at the nature of this country's relationship to different skin colors, different languages and different people. Policies over the last uh, 30 or 40 years have had a great great many problems in dealing with. Would you be able to give an example of that? Certainly. I mean, I think um, something you just mentioned uh, earlier, John, is the uh, the way in which restraint, control and restraint in used, particularly mental, in the Mental Health Act. Um, I mean, you know, I'm sort of, I, I won't sort of reel off the various uh, statistics here, um, but there has been a, um, a massive and well-established evidence base of the uh, differential um, application of uh, judicial and policing powers on black men. And certainly uh, both psychiatrists and writers in the field have been writing about this stereotype of the uh, uh, the young black male being mad, bad, black and dangerous. And of course, this almost feels like a, a caricature um, it feels almost uh, absurd saying it, but actually those kinds of conscious and unconscious stereotypes um, are a legacy of Britain's post-war relationship to its former colonial, but then, of course, changed into Commonwealth Commonwealth uh, relations around the world. The notion of understanding how certain types of anxieties, fears, um, symptoms of mental health uh, disturbances the understanding of how those play out in someone's life when they are in fact undergoing a whole variety of different stresses, that understanding was never very nuanced. It was always something that, was, uh, that wasn't at a sophisticated level. And so, you know, when you don't understand something, what you do, you apply certain types of repressive and coercive power. And I think certainly in terms of uh, um, the number of black men and black people that have been sort of controlled and restrained in, under the Mental Health Act, the number of people who've died in custody, the differential rates of uh, medication versus talking therapies, all of these different types of statistics are now part of the, the established evidence base. So people who are at the very, mo the very, the most vulnerable point in their lives actually then end up with a whole series of other experiences within the healthcare system which exacerbate those problems and you end up this uncontrollable spiral uh, of, of, of very troubling uh, troubling racialized experiences okay that was uh, that was harshad uh, keval our um, sociologist colleague i have to say not uncritical of psychology as well as psychiatry actually uh, within that and um, certainly certainly not exempting uh, psychology or psychologists or the british psychological society from some of the uh, criticisms of a failure to engage with race but one of the things that struck me particularly is that he, like the Kindred Minds Manifesto, actually, is going very much wider than simply thinking about services. And in one sense, it feels to me that there's quite a lot to disentangle here mm -hmm. in terms of 
thinking about social inequalities and thinking about levels of diagnosis among particular groups as well as what services themselves can do or aren't doing. It does, for me, um, stand out from the document. Uh, there's a, a statement that mental health is, is a rights-based social context issue. And I think that's true for all of us, um, but particularly for minority groups. And I think what I noticed reading the document was where are the spaces for black and minority ethnic groups to speak into? Uh, it feels like this document is trying to make that space. It seems to me, as somebody who's white, and I confess to being quite ignorant about issues relating to race, mm -hmm. that I don't hear many of the stories from people who are black and come from a different ethnic group to myself. And so I don't have an understanding of what that's like for people. I can read the statistics, but where the voices of black people are heard, black women are heard, um, I'm not sure they are there. I'm not sure it's those spaces exist in the media, for example. And I think there's a question about the safety of those spaces as well, about the repercussions of what you might say or how you might be perceived. I think, you know, places like Kindred Minds allow people to have a voice. But as I said before, if those voices aren't being valued, if they're kind of being kind of people are being blind to them that's not really going to bring about any change and that's that's the kind of disheartening thing that you know these issues have been affecting minority groups for a long time and it's you don't want to kind of become disillusioned with the with the country that you're living in because you think that people don't really want to know your story. One of the um, recommendations in the Kindred Mind document is a lot more kind of co-production and involvement of people from black and minority ethnic groups in service development, in generating research ideas, um, more sort of um, engagement with community groups, more cohesion perhaps between community groups and more funding for community groups. Um, I think the document highlights that BME groups are often sometimes victims when austerity strikes, one of the mm. first victims, and there's obviously a lot of concern about that. I was really interested in the recommendation that uh, people who are black should be on service provider panels at quite high levels so that they can act as people who can call to account what's happening in mental health trusts. I don't know if that happens in London, for example, where there are more black and minority ethnic populations, but it seems to me that uh, the people who this document um, are referring to are not in places where they have any power. Mm. I think that's a difficult thing that, you know, you you don't have very much kind of capital to make change if you're not in those posi positions of power and thinking about my experience as, as a black trainee, you know, thinking about my cohort, I'm one of three black trainees and I, I want to use my position to kind of think about um, experiences about race and culture and about discrimination but if people who I'm training with or if kind of training courses haven't got the, that awareness then that's kind of already hitting a brick wall and we need to kind of think about you know, what we can do to change those systems as well. So people don't feel that there's not a space for their experiences to be acknowledged, I think. I think it's always interesting in service user involvement, which is an area that I'm involved in in the programme, that that issue of seldom heard voices is really a conundrum. How do you enable seldom heard voices? People who feel on the margins, feel that they're voiceless, 
uh, feel that they're on the receiving end of stigma and discrimination and perhaps don't want to put their heads above the parapet um, and make their voices heard. You know, I'm just thinking about things like Twitter. It's, it's quite a hostile environment. So would you want to put yourself in that position, particularly if you feel that you have some vulnerabilities around your mental health difficulties? So I was quite struck by the idea of institutional racism that is featured quite heavily in this document, thinking, yes, it seems to me that institutions, trusts, are not actively reaching out to seldom heard groups. And how can they do that? And it does seem to me that it has to be through some measure of positive discrimination, positive reaching out to certain groups to hear what they have to say and find and make those safe spaces. But I'm wondering, what do you think, Lauren, about what is the safe space? It's it's difficult, isn't it? Because as you say, talking about kind of the things like Twitter and about kind of reactions and thinking about what the kind of long-term effects are, I think... I think there needs to be more collaboration. I think there needs to be kind of involvement from community groups. I think it needs to be a, a two-kind-of-fold approach that it does need to be top-down kind of from mm. government and policy, but also I think thinking specifically about healthcare, people really looking at their local areas, looking to kind of what's going on in grassroots organisations mm. and being more collaborative in that sense so that there feels that there's kind of more of a joint invitation rather than kind of a tick box exercise to say oh here's this space for this kind of marginalized group but I think it's always going to have its whatever approach is going to have its pitfalls but I still think that there needs to be something yeah a change that's made. Well I was thinking about that point uh, Lauren reading the Royal College of Psychiatrists statement on racism Mm -hmm. which you know, in one way does feel like, yep, okay, we're dealing with that one kind of thing. But, I mean, first of all, there's just so much more. There's so much more to be looked at than things that people would explicitly and consciously identify Mm. as racism. But also, I suppose I'm thinking about the the Kindred Minds um, manifesto comes in far more broadly at the beginning. It really comes in, you know, a race equality strategy. And my reading of that is that it doesn't necessarily just mean in mental health it means across across the whole of society yes Yes. it really you know you know actually we start at the beginning and we really you know try and you know try and address them things that you know come way before we get to you know frontline mental health you know mental health services and i mean that it's it's not a new point to make but it seems like it's worth making again and relating it to mental health, a lot of the factors that we know that contribute to mental health problems or increase the um, chances of experiencing a mental health problem are experienced more in BMA groups. So poverty, social isolation, unemployment, discrimination, prejudice, all of these things we know are experienced more in BME groups. And I think that's part of the reason that we're seeing higher rates of mental illness in that group. So I think it, it, it's really interesting because I wonder what the take is on, and I don't know if there's a single voice, that's another problem I think, but what is the take on why these uh, there are these higher rates of mental illness, inverted commas, uh, in people who are black? It, it's, it's really interesting because it feels to me like, well, is it all down to racism? Um, what 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 is what is actually happening? How, can we identify the processes that lead to these very 
discriminatory and excluding experiences in in mental health hospitals for example I think it's difficult to kind of pinpoint things because the issue is so multifaceted and I think thinking about the cumulative effects of you know being um, discriminated against or kind of feeling othered in a way or kind of thinking about things like poverty or access or privilege and power it's it's kind of such a mix of issues that would be very difficult I think to think oh it's this particular thing I'm sure there is research that talks about very specific areas but that's a difficulty that there is a need to keep talking about these issues to get people's very nuanced experiences because you know even the term BME which I think Raz has spoken about in the Kindred Minds manifesto is sometimes inadequate to even Mm. capture the whole experience you know between I guess Africans and Caribbeans or even I guess people who were born over here or born elsewhere there are going to be kind of subtle differences and it would be very difficult to then say this is the black experience because everyone will have variations um, between that but yeah it is difficult to pinpoint specific areas but I still think there needs to be more voices at the table so that there is kind of we're all going to be ignorant in Mm. some ways but I think there still needs to be a discussion so that people can at least feel feel heard about their experiences. I must admit I I do like the idea of a a national strategy it sounded like a fantastic thing to to be thinking about but I also wonder about uh, specifics. So for me, one of the things that really stood out for me in the document was when people are restrained in hospital um, and black uh, men being restrained uh, more frequently. And for me, this seems to be something that mental health trusts could ideally take a view on mm-hmm. and uh, take some some strategies to reduce that so that this is not happening in fact I think the the document does give an example of best practice in that area mm-hmm. well it's not like that's new however I think some of these points were picked up by um, Masuma Rahim a psychologist and writer colleague who talked about some of this and also the idea that research you know the idea that we need more research here and there that actually a lot of the research and a lot of the facts are there so Mm. let's go to that one now and we gather Raza has arrived so while we're listening to that one we'll uh, listen to Masuma. Okay, I'm here with Masuma Rahim, a psychologist and writer and occasional friend of the, uh, the blog. You wrote something, uh, something very nice for us um, a few months ago, uh, Masuma, so welcome. Thank you very much. Obviously, in the context of uh, the current podcast, we're discussing the Kindred Minds Manifesto specifically, but also issues of race and culture and mental health uh, more widely. And at the moment, it seems to me that we, we may be having a moment... Uh, where we're thinking a little bit more about those issues. Uh, Are we? And if so, why might we be, do you think? I think we are having a bit of a moment. And I think, you know, it's it's not coincidental necessarily that this comes at a time when we're saying, you know, Black Lives Matter, when we're talking about the factors in wider society that put people who are uh, ethnic minorities at a disadvantage from the day they're born, if not before, all those structural inequalities which we perpetuate, which have a profound impact on people's abilities to live full lives and achieve their potential. I think it's you know, it's also in my mind that it's 25 years ago that Stephen Lawrence was murdered, and two decades, really, since the police in the UK were branded institutionally racist. 
I think it's a shame it's taken us that two decades to really start talking properly about race and mental health, though. Well, it does seem that we are at least beginning to have a conversation. I mean, obviously, the Mental Health Act review has been a part of that, uh, where, you know, the, the glaring inequalities in terms of detention, um, I mean, they're just they're kind of so obvious that that nobody can really, you know, that nobody can really miss them. But also, we've had a couple of documents come along in recent weeks, really, which have highlighted this. One is the Royal College of Psychiatrists' statement on racism, and one is I know something that you've had um, a few things to say. The Kindred Minds Manifesto. Can you just give me an idea of what you think of those uh, documents and what might they be offering that's new, or how they might be gathering existing material together in a way that might be useful? I think the Royal College Psychiatrist document says little that's new, if I'm frank. Um, I think it says much of the same. It asks for data on racial inequalities in mental health. We have that data. We have stacks and stacks of data. What we have not had over the last few decades is sustained intervention, I think, with a real will uh, to redress the inequalities that so many people in the mental health system face. There's a lot of talk about policy uh, and NHS England and equalities advisors in the RC Psych document, but I don't see that much evidence really of it being a call to arms. The document says that the RC Psych will continue to lobby the government. I'm not quite sure what that means. Uh, I'm not sure if they're going to be asking for a pot of money to actually try to really uh, take into account the views and the needs of people who are ethnic minorities and to advocate for them. Uh, so I think it's I think it's the kind of talk I would expect from uh, a Royal College, if I'm frank. Uh, I think a lot of professional bodies talk the talk but don't really walk it. Uh, so I wasn't particularly surprised by the contents of that document. It wasn't very radical, if I may say so. The Kindred Minds document, on the other hand, I think does some extraordinary things that the professionals have failed to do. Uh, you know, we uh, as professionals are not very good at consulting people who use our services. And if we do, we're not very good at uh, consulting marginalised people, people who have multiple minority statuses, for example. The Kindred Minds Manifesto has consulted over 200 black and minority ethnic service users. That is incredible to canvas that level of opinion and experience and to put together a document uh, that really focuses on the multiple needs, housing, education, involvement, the criminal justice system, as well as mental health, you know, thinking about the impact of welfare reform and poverty. These are all profoundly important topics which are intertwined with in the lives of many people who use mental health services. And these are the kind of documents we need, actually. These are the kind of documents that service, services and clinicians should be referring to and will give us some indication of how we can be a part of improving the current state. Obviously, the Kindred Minds uh, document is quite uh, broadly focused. It talks about societal issues and it talks about uh, issues within mental health services. And you obviously have talked about a much wider picture, really, that needs to be thought about. But from within services, just thinking just purely within services at the moment, what would be your priorities, thinking about kindred minds, thinking about just your your ordinary practice and your encounters with service users and teams? What would be the things that you would make priorities over the next year or two from a perspective of working within services? I think we need to take um, some real action, actually, around looking at 
the data we have on things like uh, the people who are sectioned within our own services, uh, the people who um, are subject to restraint, the people who are offered things like talking therapies, the people who are not offered those things, the people who don't really get through the front door when it comes to giving them the whole package of things that mental health services should be offering. You know, we know that we have a history of, of doing that badly across the board. But actually, we need to be doing much more in the way of audit of our own individual services and then consulting and liaising properly with service users, not just the service users we think are appropriate, but a much broader spectrum of service users and really taking on board their opinions to think about how we do things differently and what needs to change. Do you think that could happen at a more micro level of local services, um, giving people a voice that might help drive change? I think it needs to, because, you know, um, if you work in different parts of the country, different parts of the city, people's demographics are different, their needs are different, service availability is different, funding cuts have had a different level of impact. So I think, actually, if individual services are going to improve, it's very hard to do that in a top-down fashion. What you need to do is understand the specific needs of the demographic you're working with and then look at the gap between the needs and the provision and try and reduce that gap. I don't think that can be effectively done just through uh, kind of higher level initiatives or a pot of money being spread very thinly throughout the country. Just one, You mentioned something about, just as a final thing really, uh, and as, as you're a psychologist and as I've got you on, one thing that you do hear from time to time are various suggestions or intimations that psychological therapies are not necessarily exempt from problems when it comes to working with um, black minority ethnic groups or people of non, non-white um, origin. It's basically saying that they're, they're, they're actually good for or best for a, quite a narrow tranche of people. What, what, do you, what do you think about that? Is it a case of psychotherapies are really developed by you know, white people for a very limited range of ethnicities or considerations yeah i think that's absolutely the case you know uh we you know we use that awful phrase uh psychologically minded i'm not quite sure what that means uh maybe that just means that the people we think will make our professional lives easier because we don't have to work too hard to understand them or their problems or try to help them uh, but actually we you know our society unfortunately puts people in positions of having very complicated circumstances and very complex problems and people with complex problems often have the greatest level of need and actually i think as psychologists we've been very content to sit in our consulting rooms uh, and wait for people to come to us and wait for them to uh, demonstrate that they're motivated and if they don't come to two sessions we'll discharge them because they're not motivated we often don't take much consideration of what their psychosocial circumstances might be what the barriers might be and that has to change we have got to get out of that mindset where the onus is on the service user to come to us because actually our power, our privilege, our ability to go to them is going to, be, in many cases, be far, far greater than their ability to come to us. There will be fewer barriers for us than there will for the people who should have greater access to our services. And we have really got 
to start doing something about that more proactively. Well, what about within therapy itself? I mean, there seems to be at least some evidence that within, you know, that harm resulting from therapy may fall kind of disproportionately on people of some groups or ethnicities. Is there something about the assumptions that we make within psychological therapies that could be problematic or at least limited? I think we often fail to have an understanding of other cultures, other ways of thinking, other ways of... Uh, other ways of living, you know, um, and I think we also often fail to understand the true experience of uh, being on the receiving end of things like racism. You know, we often have no understanding of, you know, I don't know what it is to be a young black man who's subject to stop and search. I don't know that. I have some understanding of what it is to be an ethnic minority because I am one, but I don't have the full understanding. And given that we have a predominantly white workforce in psychology and that we many of us have been either raised in quite affluent middle-class households or that by virtue of training and our professional status and our salary we have progressed to a middle-class way of life I think we could often be very out of touch with a lot of the people we work with we don't always understand what it is now to be in poor housing or have your welfare uh, benefits cut or to not have enough food or enough money to pay the gas bill or to have to choose between buying your children shoes and buying them food we don't understand that that's a real problem to do with our demographics that's not something we can necessarily fix very easily in the next few years because actually there's a whole lot of factors that, that prevent minorities uh, of all stripes, I think, but particularly uh, ethnic minorities, from being clinical psychologists, from getting onto that pathway and being successful in it. Um, so I think we need to up our game. We need to really, really reflect on these things, really think about our prejudices and the perspectives we come with and actually be much more open to having those things challenged by people who, through no fault of their own, have experienced huge amounts of prejudice, of stigmatisation and of marginalisation. You're listening to Discussions in Tunbridge Wells, the podcast from the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology. That was psychologist and writer uh, Masuma Rahim. However, I'm really happy to say that we've been joined uh, during that little interlude uh, by Raza, the author of Raza Griffiths, the author of the Kindred Minds Manifesto itself. Welcome. Thank you. Um, so, as we've got you here now, we uh, I think probably have quite a few questions. So I'll take chair's privilege just to ask you uh, the first one. Can you just give us a little background to how this document, uh, how this document came about, and kind of what the drivers were for it? Well, basically, Kindred Minds is um, a black and minority ethnic mental health service user-led peer support group in South London. And um, they basically thought it, that as well as the kind of pastoral care and offering each other peer support, there was also really a need for a kind of political campaigning arm to the work that they were doing that would kind of take forward strategically on a kind of a national as well as a local and a regional kind of political level, all the different strands um, that together impact on the mental well-being of BME communities, which is not just in terms of, obviously there's a lot that needs to change in mental health services, but also in more general kind of political, economic kind of policy. There are lots of things 
that impacts on the mental well-being of BME communities and that serve to distress us before we actually uh, come into contact with mental health services which sadly then often end up distressing us even more. You, you, you talked to a large number of people for this, more than just in that immediate group. Yes, a couple of hundred people. Yes, 200 BME mental health service users, predominantly from Lambeth, Lewisham and Southwark, particularly Southwark boroughs in, in South London. But as well as that, I mean, it's a manifesto, so it's not just a, a consultation. The consultation was the icing on the cake. We also tried our best to bring together the findings of many, many initiatives over the last three decades. And some of these initiatives have been led by BME mental health service users and perhaps have not always achieved the recognition that they have deserved. So it's about really bringing together a broad body of knowledge, you know, over three decades and, and bringing into one place because there is a real danger that um, these very interesting examples of practice, you know, they, they come, they, they produce some good practice and then they disappear mm. and the learning, you know, is lost. Mm. I thought there was a, one quote from the Kindred Minds Manifesto that I particularly liked that I thought illustrated some of what Raza just said really well, so I might just read that out if people don't mind. Um, it was talking about the aims of the document and it said it's not just looking at improving services that fix us it is about looking at what broke us in the first place so i thought that was a really powerful mm. quote that you um quoted in the document and it's it you know the the, the the challenge and the scope of the document you know you're quite right it's quite vast mm. and it can only really be taken forward by a very broad range of stakeholders working together including many of the people here today i hope um so it's really looking at um, you know uh, uh, the political scene, what's happening culturally, you know, in in the broadest possible terms, mm -hmm. and linking that, you know, because mental health is at the nexus of so many things that mm -hmm. impacts on our lives. The you know our experiences in education can actually then impacts on our lives. There's another quote there which talks about how um, a lot of black men, particularly black men, black African, black Caribbean men, disappear into this kind of Bermuda Triangle, which the entry point to which is the education system, you know, and then disadvantage in the education system, you know, disadvantage and discrimination within the criminal justice system, and then disadvantage and discrimination within the mental health system. This is a, a kind of a Bermuda Triangle into which many people sadly disappear. So we, we cannot really hope to tackle, if you like, a racial disadvantage in mental health just by correcting the mental health mm -hmm. system, because the mental health system in itself is at the nexus, you know, of these other kind of... Uh, social institutions, you know, state institutions, which together have a cumulative impact, you know, which disadvantages BME communities and impacts on our mental well-being. Um, one of the things I talked, among other people, to um, psychiatrists about this actually in the week, and we'll go to that, um, go to that interview possibly shortly, but one of the things he was, he was, there were two points he was really, really keen to stress. I think one was about different ethnicities and how easy it is to kind of lump things together, you know, under this BME heading and the considerations can be massively different for different uh, groups. 
And the other thing that he was saying, well, actually, let's let's go to that interview. This is with Dr. Sammy Huda, uh, who's a psychiatrist up in Liverpool. And he, I think, gave quite a positive response to the to the manifesto. They had one or two things to say about where medical labels and medical language sat. You were doing quotation marks earlier on around, you know, the term mental illness. So let's just go to that now. Uh, I'm really happy to welcome uh, Dr. Sammy Huda, a psychiatrist and Liverpool fan. Uh, so welcome, Sammy. Hoping that hasn't meant that we've, uh, you know, alienated the entire population of Manchester at this point. Well, you know, <laughs> if, if, that, if they want to stop listening for that reason, fair enough. Well, one of the reasons I was very interested in, in talking to you, uh, Sammy, is obviously you're, you're a practicing psychiatrist working in the NHS. And you do you do have uh, you know something of a public profile. You're very active on social media, and you write blogs and things like that. And you talk about many things, but one of the things that you do talk about and uh, and touch on not infrequently is is race and uh, is race and mental health. So, given that, I was just wondering. I suppose first of all. It, the Royal College of Psychiatrists have come out with this recent statement and the issue of race is everywhere. In fact, there was something on Channel 4 News uh, just tonight about race and mental health. So could you give us a little bit of an idea of what you think of that of that statement from the RCP and maybe some of the context around it? Well, I think you're also going to talk about the kindred's mind. Um, and I suppose I think both of it, if you talk about similar, some themes, some themes, some different themes. One of the themes is obviously we have to recognise that race is a is an issue in terms of mental health, and that it in itself seems to be associated with mental health, but also an interaction uh, with other factors that we know are associated with poor mental health, and sometimes that differs depending on kind of the different ethnic groups. I mean, some of the explanations were some of the inter. Uh, media variables were probably mm-hmm. better described in the Kindred Minds publications. So we've got things like poverty, uh, social exclusion, ill health, experience of discrimination, a feeling of not being welcome. And I mean, it, it's it's interesting because, because it differs for each ethnic group, as I said. So, for example, there's one paper that said that depression, for example, in South Asians was more related to ill health but perhaps di- high rates of diabetes. Uh, but for black uh, Afro-Caribbean African people, it was more related to experiences of socioeconomic deprivation. So the RC site statement a bit, the kindred minds especially, it talks about how, yes, there's race, but we also have to look at what are the intermediary factors. Obviously, race is part of it, but that race is all, someone's ethnic background is also associated with socioeconomic factors or social factors that increase the risk of mental ill health and might talk about it a bit later differently is that you know not all ethnic groups have got the same mm-hmm. risks or vulnerabilities and that i think there was one systematic meta-analysis showed that you know ethnic group had a sort of it had a, a small to moderate association with increased risk of things like anxiety and depression kathy shaw my colleague at uh, thameside she did research in manchester which showed that if you aggregated anxiety and depression together in the in central Manchester, the rates of anxiety and depression were, were, were similar between white uh, and uh, black groups, although, you know, someone had slightly higher group of anxiety, another group had slightly higher groups of depression. But that might have been because, if it's in the same area of Manchester, it might have been that all those groups were perhaps experiencing um, mm-hmm. socioeconomic problems. 
And I think one of the interesting things with Mines is it did come out with this manifesto mm-hmm. of how to deal with these issues. I think this is in the tradition of yeah, virtue of the 19th century German physician. He said, look, it's the job of, you know, he said specifically doctors, but we could say all health professionals to point out to politicians uh, what are the social factors that lead to ill health. Um, unfortunately, and then it's up to politicians to actually make the big changes in order to address these social factors. And a lot of the suggestions by the Kindred Binds Group were very good. The, the pragmatic difficulty is, will, will these be implemented? Does, does government have, have, have the will to implement them? Well, I'm, I'm interested in just roll back just slightly into some of the things that you said. I mean, I thought that that was something that the, the Kindred Minds Manifesto, it, it really addresses a couple of things. Um, the notion of what, you know, particular sorts of experiences may lead to, you know, mental health morbidity, basically. Uh, but also what's going on within the system itself. Uh, can you, how, how do we parse those things out, are there meaningful things that we can do within the system it, it, itself? How do we how do we get how do we address mm. those sorts of those sorts of things? Because I noticed the the Royal College of Psychiatrists manifesto talks about racism, and obviously, I mean that's that's important and necessary. But a lot of the problems might not be ones that people are necessarily address you know aware of under a banner as explicit as mm. racism. Um, can, I, can I go be cheeky and answer that question later after another point I made? Is that yeah, okay, sure, no, 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 go ahead. I, I know Kindred Minds wasn't keen on the concept of psychosis, but I think one of the interesting things is is that the, the risk factor for psychosis, I mean, there was a recent umbrella review in moral psychiatry about risk factors for psychosis, and one of the only two risk factors that had the highest level of evidence for it, you know, international research, was being black Afro-Caribbean in the mm-hmm. U- in England. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it applies. There's, there's not there's not high populations in the rest of the UK, but I'm sure it applies to them as well. Uh, I think one of the uh, I mean one of the fact I mean in terms of schizophrenia, there's obviously research that shows that people from different ethnic groups miss the mood element of people's presentations and say they've got schizophrenia. Whereas in fact, people from the same ethnic group might say actually there's someone's manic or he's Depressed, he's got psychosis, but he's also got a mood disorder as well. So if you take the whole umbrella group of psychosis rather than just specifically schizophrenia, we've got this, and it's it's not, and it's higher than certain ethnic groups, particularly back Afro-Caribbean, and to less extent back African, and in different countries it varies. So I think it's like Surinamese in Holland and Moroccans in Holland, um, but particularly back Afro-Caribbeans in the United Kingdom, England, and it's a it's a social factor. Mm-hmm. It's it's they've looked at other facts. It's not genetics. It's not drugs. It's a social factor, mm-hmm. and one of the you know we've it it's mind-boggling the lack of research into this. We should be, um, and I think that's one of the things that RC Psych didn't ask for. Kindred Minds didn't ask for. I think because they don't like the concept of psychosis or whatever. But I think it's a big gap in our research agenda now is identifying the reasons. Why? What is the experience of black Afro-Caribbean people in this country that places them at such a high risk or such a specific form of uh, emotional distress mm-hmm. uh, and mental health problems? And that's something we're not looking at. And it's not a, it, it's not um, it's not a biological research project, is it? It's a psychosocial research project. So we should be finding out 
you know, putting the emphasis on this and finding out the reasons why this happened. I know ASOP came out with one potent, particular explanation, which was, I think, lack of um, contact with the parent, usually a father, from an early age. But that didn't explain all the difference. And I wonder if that's just a confounding factor anyway, whether it's measuring something else. So I think, for me, disappointingly, was the issue is this wasn't brought to the fore. This is such an important issue. We're not researching it. We're not researching it from the right angles. We need to be getting interdisciplinary research, psychological, sociological research into finding out why this happens. Uh, and, we've been, and we know it's been happening for decades, decades. We're really not getting a grip on that. I mean, it's something that seems no. to come up quite a bit in research and the Kindred Minds Manifesto does talk about it as, as well. You know, the issue that, you know, men from, uh, you know, black, Af- most black Afro-Caribbean background seem to attract that diagnosis more. Mm-hmm. But it, it seems to me that you're saying this isn't just about the system, not at all. It's actually about something far, far wider than the system, uh, than the mental health system that we're in. The odds ratio is too high. It's 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 and it, the evidence is so strong. It's it's up there. One of the I can't even remember the other one. <laughs> one of the two was uh, oh yeah, the other one was have being have a prodromal state. So that that's to me that's not a risk factor, is it? It's saying like, well, you're having a prodromal state for psychosis. Uh, so that increases the risk for your psychosis. Well, that's sort of a tautological. Mm-hmm. So in fact, I would say this is the strongest evidence for mm-hmm. a risk factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with the best amount of evidence, and mm-hmm. we're not researching it. So, th- uh, this thinking about outside services, what about within the more narrow pool of services? Um, is there a sense of what our priorities can be? As I say, I mean, the RCP document talks about racism, though there are certainly many, you know, things. Certainly, from my own experience in services, people say, "Oh, we don't want to be racist," but you know, they do all sorts of large and small things that right. you know are influenced by race and and ethnicity. So, what would be your priorities, kind of inside the system? Well, I think the, I think the term institutional racism, I think. If you think of it, it's, it's not people aren't intentionally necessarily racist, but the effects see, see the effects are clear that people from different ethnic minority backgrounds get a bad deal of mental health services. So we had that long-term ASOP research, which showed that even though uh, black people uh, with psychosis was diagnosis, they there was clinically they were identical, but they had worse outcomes. They had worse experiences of care. Uh, we know that uh, pe- black people are regarded as being uh, more dangerous mm-hmm. and are get, being given more me- doses of medication, more likely to enter. Uh, and unfortunately, this is partly maybe like, because that black people's experience of care aren't great, so that goes out maybe in the community, and the community think we don't want to go near them, they treat us badly. And then, you know, then they, they don't, the routes into service maybe are that, uh, through the police, you know, and what a horrible way to come into service, dragged in by the police. Yes. Um, so, listen, from, a, from what I would say, a traditional psychiatry left-wing point of view, it's a social justice issue, okay? From uh, the critical psychiatry, that's right-wing point of view of people as customers, um, it's, it's an issue as well because customers are getting bad service. So, it, it, you know, we ha- it's it's an important issue. Again, that we need to find out more why people are having these bad experiences. I think Kindred Minds is a good idea, 
Because obviously, basically, they're asking people, aren't they? They're saying, well, this is what I know, and this is what I know from talking to people who've had similar experiences to me. So that's a data-gathering exercise, isn't it? And they're telling us, this is their experience and the basis of experience of other people that they know. I would still say we still need to find out more. Do you know, if, 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 if healthcare, if we were a company and we had one group of customers, I'm talking obviously from the Zats right wing kind of point of view, mm-hmm. uh, and that we are treating them badly and they are getting bad care, we'd want to know what, what is it we're doing wrong. Mm-hmm. So we need to know, find out what we're doing wrong that are giving people such bad experience care. Um, people, there's research that shows that black people, BME people, sorry, not specific black people, but BME folks, people were getting more likely to get harmed by psychotherapy. So this is across the board of mental health that we are giving people worse experiences of care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are giving people harm, you know. Mm-hmm. So we need to find out what we're doing and we've got to try and start addressing it. Okay, so obviously we have to, I'm sure like you, you've got to do this equality and diversity training every year, every three years or something. But perhaps in training, we need to have more focus on these issues of unconscious bias that we have, of unconscious attributions, more awareness of how people act, of, of cultural differences. Yeah, I don't know if you remember that one. I remember the Queen. I remember the Queen visit the United States was it 20 years ago in the South. And she's just the sort of look of panic on her face. And uh, it was, it was, a, it was a black southern woman. She went up and just hugged her with excitement. <laughs> just this look of like existential panic in the Queen's face. So, you know, we have to be aware of how different people act and what what is, you know, there's nothing abnormal where they act. This is how they act. This is their culture. This is how they act. We need to improve our cultural education. We need to be improve our awareness of our cultural biases, of our of our misattributions of our mistakes and also we've got to try and uh, address the fact that we are treating people worse and that we have to find out why and, and change it and take it seriously. That was uh, that was doc, uh, Dr Sammy Huda. Now one of the things that Sammy was saying was that he he felt that not really embracing the label of schizophrenia perhaps led to a bit of a, a, a gap in some potentially useful research and I was quite struck that you that you avoided medical language uh, and I think that there were some very given what you've said about the breadth and scope of what you were looking at that seems important to me but are there other particular reasons why it doesn't feel you know medical medical language and medical concepts are not really at the centre of this um, I, I think that the, the fact that medical language, biomedical language and understanding of this experience which we can call mental distress, there are lots of different um, labels, it's, 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 it's a cultural thing, it's a personal thing, there are lots of different perspectives around it and we're, we're, we're certainly not coming from a place where we would completely discount the validity of a biomedical understanding of mental distress for some people. However, what we're, we're basically in a context in which a biomedical understanding of mental distress is the de facto understanding and, and services are kind of, if you like, calibrated and, and arranged according to that understanding, which is not really shared by many, many people from all communities. But I think particularly because this understanding of you know, the experience of distress uh, has been developed in a kind of white European context, I think it can sometimes be problematic to kind of apply that, you know, um, to what we feel, a lot of us feel, are often 
socially caused issues, you know, and including, you know, what is sometimes called schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not totally discounting, that, you know, that schizo- you know, some people understand schizophrenia according to a biomedical mm-hmm. perspective, but we don't want that to be the driving force in the way all services are configured because many people don't have that understanding of their own experiences of, you know, let's call it voice hearing or whatever it is. So I think um, that's where we're coming from. And one of the points raised in the position statement by the Royal College of Psychiatrists was that they wanted to do more work to make services, to increase accessibility to mental health services for BME groups. And I was thinking, well, I think that is a good statement if the services that you're making more accessible seem relevant and helpful. There's no point in just trying to get more people to come if once they're there, they're not finding the service relevant. So, Well, potentially people will be accessing discriminatory services where uh, perhaps you could argue that black people are already discriminated against and then they are likely to attach, have attached to them a label of schizophrenia which will discriminate against them and marginalise them and make them feel less well in themselves um, because they come into services. So there are a few things that need to be done before uh, making uh, services accessible because mm. services need to change. I think that that's very clear from, from the document and clear, as you say, there is some research and they're clear that the research says services need to change. They're part of a discriminatory process mm. that's occurring in society. Is that what you think, rather, or have I got well, that wrong? I, I would wholeheartedly agree. I mean, we've, we've known about this for, uh, well, you know, breaking the circles of fear reports, uh, Sainsbury Centre, I think uh, 15, 16 years ago, mm. talked about how this perception, there is a real fear within some BME communities mm. of accessing services because of the discriminatory and very harsh way some BME communities are treated within the system. And it's, it's a real fear, it's not just a, a made-up fear. Mm. And, and, and so I think that as well as being uh, accessible, yes, we absolutely need to make services more appropriate. And I would say safe. It's mm. actually about not just making certain, not just kind of fine-tuning services. Mm. It's about actually fundamentally making them safe. And I think within kind of august institutions, let's say, like the Royal College of Psychiatrists and other professional organisations, there is a real difficulty in acknowledging that services can sometimes not only not be they're not just not indispensable but sometimes they can be counterproductive and even harmful so I remember um, I was part of um, another organization called um, Social Perspectives Network this was in 2006-2007 we were commissioned to write the draft for the Royal College of Psychiatrists position paper on recovery called a common purpose and so in our consultations with BME communities we asked you know what are the things that facilitate your recovery and many of the people from BME communities a service users said our recovery started when we left the psychiatric ward but you can imagine it would be very very uncomfortable for the Royal College of Psychiatrists to put that in their position paper on recovery and so that was actually um, edited but I think this is not just a problem for psychiatry, mm. it's also a problem for psychology mm. and nursing and mental health nursing, all, all, all professions. Mm. There's a, a difficulty in acknowledging that they can sometimes cause harm mm. and, and addressing that is, is, is difficult. And I definitely, you know, wouldn't think it's a conscious racism a lot of this. People aren't aware, you know, that they aren't choosing to be racist, you know. I think this is very much an unconscious thing often. Um, well, that's what I mean about I don't... 
I appreciate what's in the report, but I'm still not quite sure exactly what's going on because for me, um, it seems that there are quite a few black and minority ethnic mental health workers. Mm-hmm. So what's their take on what's happening? Um, so it, well, we have some here. Oh, so. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, we do. What's your take on that? I Lauren? feel like the, it's about kind of the systems, thinking about being a trainee psychologist in terms of the systems and the models that we are taught and the systems that we're exposed to. And although we might have some personal or professional awareness of kind of diversity or cultural issues, just thinking about things like um, the concept of psychological mindedness, one of those mm-hmm. kind of buzzwords that I kind of hear thrown around and what kind of makes me feel a bit uncomfortable because I think that's a very kind of Eurocentric perspective thinking about how people express their distress or what kind of, yeah, how you kind of, what what your marker of how kind of capable someone is of accessing something like a talking therapy and, you know, maybe that is part and parcel of why, say, for example, black men are more kind of likely to be kind of sectioned or often offered um, medication as opposed to kind of talking therapy. It's about who's who's you know who's being offered what and what judgments are made based on what criteria or based on what kind of world view is it a western world view is it taking into account you know lived experiences of race and culture and things but like that? I, I wonder if you know psychological therapy is necessarily an answer to that as well or just recreate yeah. assumptions certainly all of the people that i interviewed for this talked about you know the white centrism or eurocentrism of some of the assumptions within psychological therapies which seems to have been borne out a bit by the evidence actually that you know it doesn't necessarily work out equally well psychological therapies don't necessarily work out equally well for all groups there's been some data published on that this week by the house of commons library actually Mm -hmm. i saw that on twitter actually yeah it's looking at the increasing access to psychological therapies data for 2016 2017 and they have found slightly lower rates of um, what they deem to be the threshold for recovery in ethnic minority groups so Uh, their figures, their um, data says that people identifying as white were more likely to move to recovery and see an improvement in their conditions than those of other ethnicities. So 50% of people identifying as white moved to recovery compared to 44% of those identifying as Asian or Asian British. And we don't know why, do we? I mean, I wonder if we have, you know, people talk about culturally appropriate services, but maybe there is a, a big gap here, a cult- culturally appropriate services. What would that look like? And it's really interesting that um, the manifesto is saying uh, we, want, we want certain things, but I'm, I, you know, what does that actually look like in practice? What would we have offered if it occurred? Well, I think one of the big gaps, I mean, I mean, I think we need to look at the whole picture. Mm. We need to look at, you know, talking therapy. We need to look at, you know, mental health inpatient wards. But a really important factor in our experience in, in, that's kind of facilitated BME service users recovery is BME-specific peer support and, and kind of community-led support. Mm. And as we know, um, you know, we're living in times where, you know, lots of services have been cut, there's austerity, but we know that austerity is disproportionately affecting those communities that are already worse off. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in terms of the BME voluntary sector, you know, the whole voluntary sector has been cut. What we know that the BME voluntary sector has been disproportionately cut. Um, You know, in the borough of Southwark, where, you know, I've been working over the last several years, you know, so many BME service user-led groups have actually gone under and one of the advantages 
of you know having a kind of a BME peer support group that's run well. I mean, it has to be run well, obviously. Is that um, it's easier sometimes for BME service users to talk about their common experiences of racism and discrimination within those spaces, and we know that it may sometimes be more difficult for um, them to talk about these experiences in non-BME specific spaces. So, I think that is part of the the answer you know is to have community-based services and support and to work with BME service users in in providing some of those supports but that that infrastructure has been completely decimated sadly and so not only do we have a picture where it's even hard to get mainstream services even if you're in a crisis for all communities but that you know that and BME service, service users find it sometimes um, quite difficult to access those services. They may be fearful of accessing them anyway. But the, the supports in the community have also been taken away. So I think it would be fair to say we're facing a real crisis, you know, in mental health, particularly for BME communities. I, I was wondering a particular question for you, actually, Lauren, given what you've just said, Raza, because I find that really resonant. And I, well, not a BME group, I came into training. I'd lived in Scotland. I'd grown up in a very, very religious family, very Irish Catholic family. I remember finding lots of the assumptions that seemed to inform um, therapy very, very foreign. Now, that was part of the appeal. You know, obviously, I spent a lot of my 20s thinking I should have really grown up in the OBN and hung out with <laughs> Freud and Klimt or whatever, you know. But I just wonder if the experience, you're quite close to the training experience. Mm. Is that something that that, that resonates because yeah. it was it was new it was foreign it was not and in some ways when I see religious clients you know it feels to me that they could actually be far better served within mm. somewhere where some of those assumptions were were held a bit more strongly than where yeah. I work I definitely think there's massive gaps in kind of the provision that's offered and I think it's difficult when I'm playing this not playing having this dual role of being a trainee but also having my own kind of um, cultural experiences of discrimination of or kind of yeah issues relating to race and not feeling like there is a space or there's kind of always kind of um, yeah a forum to consider these things and to consider different ways of doing things and I think when it is spoken about it maybe isn't kind of put into practice it maybe is um, alluded to or people kind of try to hold it in mind but when you look on, on the ground in terms of placement and things like that people's experiences are not really acknowledged in in the way that I possibly would hope and I think it is a shame that there aren't from the professional level there aren't kind of more kind of champions to kind of get people yeah thinking about things a bit a bit differently but when there are so few and when kind of black and minority ethnic kind of psychologists or um, people in the profession are so few and far between you don't want to be the kind of token person waving the flag for those things because again that puts you in a vulnerable position it goes back to this whole thing about safety as well about having a safe space for everyone I know Lauren that you actually need to head off in a moment don't <laughs> yeah. you so I think we'll say goodbye to you now thank you very thank much you we'll continue on a little Thanks. bit but thank you Lauren again so just the, the last few of us, and uh, Lawrence had to leave, the last uh, few of us now, the last reserve, we'll uh, just just continue the discussion while we've got you here, Raza. What, what else was kind of on your minds about this? Well, uh, I guess um, as somebody who's white and lives out in um, the countryside or suburbia... Um, Very white uh, place, it basically. Is, it is quite a white place. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm just really interested in the fact that I don't know many black people's stories. 
And I'm thinking, well, where do I hear most stories from? I hear them from the media. And I'm really interested, Raza, how you think what you, the work that you've done and your colleagues have done can be shared with the community in an effective way so that a voice is heard, voices are heard and a space is created. Have you any thoughts on that? Well, that's a really important point because, I mean, the manifesto is not just designed as a kind of a document to gather dust on a mm. shelf. I mean, it, it, it's really designed as a tool that many, many groups, you know, working in partnership and broad networks can take forward. Now, obviously, because the manifesto deals with so many different uh, interlinked areas of life from, you know, education to policing to access to green spaces to mental health and, you know, education and housing. I mean, the, the, the people who are going to be taking it forward, they, we need to really kind of, uh, first of all, identify who they are mm. and work with them. So it will look different. The stakeholders that we work with to take forward recommendations will kind of depend on which particular recommendations they will be but certainly you know professional organizations British Psychological Society we hope will be very much at the heart of that. Does the BPS have a BME group to support its work? Used to but not Used to but doesn't have any more. Well, that's um, interesting in itself. It, I, I guess, uh, um, as a service user myself and very involved in the service user movement, this idea of people having a voice and being able to speak out and that making a difference, I, I really believe that that is the way forward. Uh, and I was so interested in what, what I wanted to ask Lauren was, as a mental health professional, she's experiencing that idea of it being unsafe to be somebody who speaks out from a black perspective and that is quite worrying because though that means who are the people within the services who are speaking out for minority groups so what you know the, the, again what's interesting here is what actually is going on um, and how how do we change it because people do have to speak up and one of the great things about the report is it's a beginning of having a voice isn't it yeah, I think um, um, it would be fair to say that the recent history of, um, you know, BME communities' experiences, let's say, of involvement, you know, within um, kind of professional organisations have been sadly quite tokenistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there have been reports out that haven't had BME service user voices in them that really should have, you know, even reports that have purported to tackle, you know, issues of racism haven't always had BME service user voices in them and I think we're actually up against a bit of a struggle because there has been so much tokenism over the decades and really the 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 manifesto it's unique it's fairly you know unusual for bringing lots of different things together but in and of themselves many of the um you know recommendations are not new Mm. you know they've been said they've been reiterated many you know, over the last several decades. And so there is a kind of a consultation fatigue. There is a sense that, well, you know, even this race disparity audit, you know, that Theresa May ordered, that revealed, um, you know, racial disadvantage in many areas of life, you know, from education to, you know, particularly in mental health, you know, um, black communities four times more likely to be detained, you know, in the Mm -hmm. mental health system. All these disadvantages, we've known about them for many, many years. But now what is actually going to happen I mean if you're asking people to get involved and um, bring up their painful experiences and you know you say you want to change things well where is the evidence of that change Mm -hmm. you know over the last several decades 
you know, things have not got better in mental health. Um, and so there's a real sense of, well, why should we get involved in this? Mm. So that's a kind of a, an additional struggle that yes. we're up against. And it remains to be seen whether the Mental Health Act review, which is currently being undertaken by Sir Simon Wesley, will, um, you know, meet well, it's, it, one of its key kind of tasks is to address uh, racial disadvantage in mental health. But it remains to be seen what will actually come out of that, what will be the or, or how changes. much can be done on that very limited canvas actually of the Mental Health Act and certainly having been to one of the consultations he is appropriately I think realistic about the limits of what can be you know the limits of I mean it may be that's not where he or other people would necessarily start but that's where what they've been handed really essentially is the Mental Health Act review. Well um, but, but there's a bit of me going well you know there are some really obvious targets here that can be can somehow be linked to this review around uh, the amount of uh, the numbers of men who are det- black men who are detained the number of black men who are restrained um, these these are all subject to mental health law so I think quite a lot does hang on what comes out of that review I have to say the drivers might be outside of the Mental Health Act and in many of these other places though and that's the worry I have that the mental health you know trying to change the Mental Health Act is quite a limited it's quite a limited canvas to deal with things that strike me as much bigger sorry Rachel I mean as someone who has worked in forensic services for a long time um, you know I share concerns about the higher rates of detention of black men and I was particularly interested reading your recommendation in the Kindred Minds report about sort of working with with the police um, and because often you were saying that people come into mental health system through the criminal justice route and trying to sort of tackle that route um, working with BME groups working with the police I thought was a um, really important and interesting suggestion particularly at the moment given the Stephen Lawrence anniversary um, so I was interested to talk to you, Raza, a bit more about your thoughts well, on Well, there was a narrative storytelling kind of uh, approach um, in, I think it was in na- neighbouring Lambeth, in which you, it, it seemed like a very interesting example of how barriers were being broken between communities that, for all kinds of reasons, have felt persecuted by the police mm-hmm. and, you know, disproportionately subject to stop and search and the police sharing their stories. Um, but it's now ended, you see, and I think some of that work needs to continue. It needs to continue on a national strategic level, you know, because what is at heart there is that there are communities in our in our in our society which don't trust the police um, for various reasons, and that can't be right in any democratic society. All communities should feel able to trust the police that the police and the criminal justice system will treat us you know impartially and fairly and that we can approach them when we ourselves need need help but um there's a lot of lip service going on and and that initiative has now ended well we know that people with mental health difficulties may have some strong views about the their relationship to the police because they may have been detained by the police and it's only very recently that street triage has started to come uh, to various different areas so it feels to me that you know that's quite that is an interesting area to maybe um, try and have some influence on because there you've got two uh, organizations the mental health trust and street triage people and the police working together Mm -hmm. potentially a, a different dialogue will be emerging anyway so that's a, a place of change as at the moment where further change might happen in relation to BME uh, members of the community. I think it's fundamentally about building trust. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. uh, between BME communities and, if you like, key state institutions mm-hmm. like mental health, mm-hmm. like the police, etc. Yeah. And and that's a really big task. And I think we really need to be serious about um, kind of um, doing practical things on a local level. And it does, for me, go back to the Mental Health Act. If the Mental Health Act is seen as fair and just, then that will enable trust. Where the Mental Health Act is seen as being um, forceful, unjust, uh, frightening, uh, without reason, then that trust is very difficult to develop in this area. It feels rather more difficult after the last fortnight perhaps as well in terms of trust between you know big ticket state institutions and BME groups at the time of recording the Home Secretary is still under enormous pressure over the Windrush affair that's a separate issue and I think a complicated one uh, you know perhaps not one to get into in this but clearly the you know is massively unhelpful in terms of trust between the state and its citizens really uh, which is not so great really but, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you obviously the Kindred Minds Manifesto we'll have to finish up shortly but the Kindred Minds Manifesto and I think this is both a huge strength and such richness in it but also it kind of leaves me wondering where to go next a little bit and because one of the things I've been thinking about in mental health the things that have really caught the eye of government in mental health in the last year have been quite t- I have reservations about some of them you know the zero suicide initiative I've gone on record as having some reservations about that um, mental health first aid and aspects of that but they're packaged up very tidily and neatly to catch the eye of government with appealing policies so what do we do how do we catch the eye of policy makers locally nationally what are the what are the first areas where we think we could get some traction with some of the ideas in in this? Well, um, I mean, this is about kind of the, the the kind of long road of implementing the manifesto kind mm-hmm. of recommendations. That th- this is a very <laughs> kind of multi pronged kind of strategy which we're developing at the moment. Um, but I think what is really key is we need someone right at the centre of political life to take responsibility for, um, you know, to create a race equality strategy, not just in mental health, but across the board. And it needs to be, you know, someone at a ministerial level and um, that needs to be answer answerable to ensuring that, um, you know, racial disparities across life are, are reduced and tackled effectively. So I think without that, there is a sense that this could be just another flash in the pan that there will be some interesting, you know, practice in Newcastle or Lambeth or, or, or Bristol or wherever. There'll be it'll be a really good initiative, and you know, you'll get people's your communities on side, and then it will just finish, you know. So there needs to be responsibility um, and power right at the heart of government to to take this forward. And I think without that kind of comprehensive and strategic holding the whole thing together, we'll just have more interesting initiatives another delivering race equality initiative that didn't really kind of do something because what we're talking about is you know forces you know racism and discrimination that have been around for centuries and kind of do define the cultures of countries and to think that one can kind of tackle that in a five-year program is um is very um illusory really as a politician in you there somewhere Raza, because i think actually that is not a bad way of 
thinking about it and in some sense what what do our political leaders like to do they like to be seen to be trying to do something i mean sometimes they do ill thought through things and the wrong things but nonetheless they like to be seen to be taking the initiative around things that are causing public concern and that seems to me to be something that could actually play very well with the public and be a good thing for a politician to take ownership of a good initiative for a senior politician to take ownership of and in some ways I know it's a high aspiration but in some ways it it might be more tractable than turning around and saying sort out housing or something like that which can feel really huge and nebulous and and expensive really what what do the rest of you think? I think it's absolutely essential and I'm thinking about all the movements the big social movements have begun by people expressing their stories and expressing their desires for change and change has happened but as you say Raza it is a long journey and um, people can become disillusioned in the process I I also have um, very much a view that uh, you have to if you're trying to intervene in a massive system you have to intervene in the places where you think you will be able to bring about change and certainly it's in politics that some of this change needs to happen So, dear Mrs May, you've had a really bad few weeks. Here's a way of helping you rehabilitate some of your reputation. Or, or, or dear Mr Lammy, you know, and linking, linking, uh, you know, racism within the mental health system to, you know, a rise of racism generally in society, you know, a move to right-wing populism, which, you're right, there is a a link. It may not always seem a very direct link, but I think um, these kind of political, cultural kind of ways do do kind of impacts on, um, you know, the nitty-gritty of what's happening on the ground. So I think um, one of the problems you see is that there are loads of different organisations and groups, not just kindred minds, um, who have been doing lots of interesting initiatives, you know, the Why Is My Curriculum White within, you know, which is, I think, led by students, isn't it, in, in academia. Um, so there are all these different initiatives, but there's no real infrastructure to bring us all together. And particularly, there is no infrastructure for not just BME mental health service users, but mental health service users. The, the infrastructural organisations that are there that can sustain and carry this work forward are subject to, you know, the vagaries of the funding system. Um, so... Without a kind of strong BME service user voice there, we're kind of reliant on kind of other organisations to be kind of advocating for us. And I think that's not quite right. I think um, there needs to be a BME service user presence at that table with politicians. And um, I mean, the whole point of the manifesto is not just, in a sense, to regurg, albeit to bring it all together in one place, but just to regurgitate with lots of people and wonderful initiatives have been saying. But it's about saying, you know, we want the power and we want to sit there at the table with you and to take things forward, you know, and to hold you accountable, which is is always very difficult because it's about a kind of a power shift and uh, power is not often given, unfortunately. Well, when people in central government, though, do decide that something really needs to become a priority, it can absolutely change the world. And it seems to me at the moment that politicians on all sides, uh, our leaders on all sides, are really needing some kind of more positive story about race and inclusiveness and in our country, which is feeling quite fractured at the moment. And it seems to me that, actually, if I was meeting the Prime Minister tomorrow, which I'm not, that that would probably be the first thing I would suggest to her. This will will be good, really. 
But um, does anyone, do we want to say anything before we finish? Oh, but I just really, Raza, I understand just before we finish with you that you're still seeking funds for a paper, for a hard copy of this uh, and a print run of the manifesto. Is that, is that um, seeking of funds still going on? Uh, yeah, let me just explain that when this whole kind of project started, we were part of a, it was a part-time kind of funded mm-hmm. project. But, uh, you know, due to the vagaries of the funding system, it's now no longer a, at all funded. Uh, but, of course, there is a kind of informal network of us that is pushing this forward. There's no point just writing a manifesto mm-hmm. for it to gather dust on a shelf. So I, I, I would say the priority at the moment is we've got a launch event mm-hmm. on the 18th of July yeah. uh, at the Maudsley in South London. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also going to be in touch with some senior politicians quite soon to see if there can also be an, another event in conjunction with other kind of uh, racial justice organisations within Parliament. Um, mm-hmm. That would be really good high profile. Then the politicians won't have any excuse not to come. Mm-hmm. Um, but the priority is also to you know get some uh, some a few thousand pounds together for refreshments but also i would say the publication of the executive summary which is a shorter version six page mm-hmm. document it would be great to get the um the longer 50 page document published as well but i think given the um scarcity of funding it's not really a priority and i think people would probably read that online but i think the key decision makers they definitely need to read the executive summary mm-hmm. so it'd be good to have printed versions of that for the manifesto launch and also um you know so i can give you contact details if you want mm-hmm. kind of we have a go fund all of these on our uh, blog post that supports okay. the podcast so we'll put links yeah. to all of those things on the on the show page on our on our blog so hopefully people if they want to make a contribution to that can go straight there with a bit of luck Okay, that all really remains for me to say thank you, Rachel, and thank you, Laura. Thank you. And thank you particularly, Raza, because you have travelled a fair way to be with us um, today. And just to say that the best way to follow the podcast is to subscribe. You can do that on iTunes by searching for Discussions in Tunbridge Wells. You can also find some of the links to things that we've talked about on our blog and we'll try and gather a few links for that including the funding one uh, that's blogs.canterbury.ac.uk slash discursive as well as that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook if you look for P-S-Y. that's at P-S-Y. so thank you again everyone and we're not quite sure as ever when we'll be back but hopefully it'll be soon <laughs>